Good evening, world. This is the podcast Asset Fast and your host, Laura Cattell. So, uh, we breezed through seven and eight really, really quickly. I mean, those were some super slim chapters, but they had specific purposes. Like, he was using the chapter to address a specific offshoot of, uh, or a specific topic, one or the other. And this particular chapter that we're on, chapter nine, is all about the common criticisms of the New Thought Movement, um, who's doing them, what are they insinuating, and Mr. Horowitz's rebuttal. We went over quite a bit of that yesterday. We're going to continue that today because that's quite a bit more to go over. Quite, quite a bit more. So, this one isn't, excuse me, this particular chapter isn't, uh, segmented into subchapters like some of the other ones have done. This one specifically is just going full broke. So we're going to stop at a couple of places that aren't going to seem like they... I don't know what this... Like they break there on purpose. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of um, recap of yesterday, and then we'll segue into uh, where we left off at, and then continue on today. So, we went over a lot of the criticism yesterday of, um, basically, and he went down and, and we, um, well, I'm trying to think of the words and they're not coming to me. Uh, we went over some studies, we went back over some original studies we went over earlier in the book, and studies that current critics are using, uh, to basically critique, share their criticisms, have a good laugh, that kind of thing. A lot of mainstream psychologists call it woo-woo. We've been over this. It's not woo-woo. Um, if you bother to have just a small self-contemplative session where you go over some of these questions and you think them out for yourself. Alright, it's not woo-woo. There are too many studies in so many of the different aspects of what makes this legitimate to not have legitimate conversations about this. I mean, that's really just tacky and dismissive if you're just going to sit there and laugh at this because of your pedigree of learning from this particular hallowed institution. Okay. I promise you, the Wright brothers didn't go to any particular institution that taught them how to build the first plane. They still built the first plane. So, just a little bit um, back story there and some context. So, before we go any farther, my shout out to the restaurant industry, my gals, guys and gals out there in Foodland. Man, it's rough. So, thank you for showing up. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you've done. Oh, sorry. Sneezes. Um, and thank you for, you know, still being here, still doing, still cooking, still searching out new horizons. And if you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and you can't take it anymore, please, 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 don't do something you can't take back. 
Don't quit. Please, please don't quit. You deserve to be here. This is just a bad chapter. It's not a bad life, nor is it doomed for the future. It's just a lot of changes going on right now. Please don't quit. Please don't quit. Okay, so, yesterday we were talking about, or rather, covering some of the, oh, how do I say, shortcuts that some researchers take versus others. Some researchers really go above and beyond, and they make sure that all their work is beyond reproach. All of their controls for their studies are, are spot on. They do thousands of them, so they have a decent volume and body of work from which to draw from. So that they can't say it's just a one-off. Or, well, this is a um, aberrant um, spin-off of something that, you know, it's a one-in-a-million one type of a thing. Rather than saying, no, I've actually got thousands of studies. And actually, there's a trend here. And you can go ahead and pick apart my study if you like. And then you're going to come to the same conclusion that I did. Which is what we went over earlier in the book when the other mainstream guys were talking about uh, the researcher from Duke University. And they were of the mind, um, I cannot argue with its findings, though I can't, still can't agree with them, basically. They didn't like where the findings were leading because that meant they had to go back and rewrite every or re-research everything they thought they knew about the mind, how the mind works, our interconnectedness with the world, and all the other kinds of things that they were going on at the time. So it causes a lot of controversy. And specifically yesterday we were talking about, or had finished off talking about, a, uh, what was her name? Cap. Capas. A difference in Mrs. Uh, Heather Berry Kappas. Caps? Kappas? I'm not sure. Anyway, where she did a two-week study, only one week of which was actual visualization, and the other week was to see if that visualization worked. And so we come off of that... Where am I? Alright, so we left off where? Our, our psychology is a mosaic of images, scenes, motions, and words. The researchers concluded students with high expectations... Oh, did I have to leave off there? Hmm. You know what, I'm just gonna start with there anyways. Alright. Um, researchers concluded the students with high expectations of success received comparatively more job offers and earned more money. So I'm gonna go back over that one. High expectations of success versus what they called positive fantasies. That's what they were calling visualization. Positive fantasies. To the contrary, received comparatively fewer job offers and earned less money. Which is what he puts forth as an example of fringe thinking getting conflated with positive thinking. Positive thinking would actually more be the students with the high expectations not harboring fantasies. And he puts forth that the researchers did not discover that positive thinkers earned less. Rather, they found that positive fantasizers seemed to perform less well, while negative fantasizers were not studied. 
And that's just one of those little things that when you look at a study at face value and you take in the information that the study is providing you, a lot of times those other questions don't get asked. Alright, okay, so it found this, but what about the other side? It didn't do enough to really satisfy the questions that were being asked. Continuing. One consideration that apparently concerned neither the study's authors nor the journalists covering them, the study was also part of the New Yorker critique and widely picked up from there, was whether any of these researchers were capable of guiding their subjects in meaningful methods of positive mind dynamics. Did they know enough of the subject to actually conduct the study? Or did they just pick some random psychologists that were, you know, preeminent in their field and ask them to, con to conduct the study rather than actually picking contemporaries in the field of new thought because they view it with derision and scorn to actually conduct the study. So were the people conducting the study actually knowledgeable enough in the subject matter to conduct the study, first, first and foremost? <clears throat> Excuse me. Their techniques are not described. Did they approximate the virtuosity and inventiveness of, say, a mental conditioning pioneer such as Emile Coué? What, in the end, was really tested? Perhaps it was the researchers' abilities as motivational coaches. And that's a good point. And again, a very dis grand distinction between proper research and research done specifically to reach a biased end result that's already been concluded. They're doing the, basically they're doing the study to prove the end result that they want to see, want to find, which is what happens when you get, um, honestly, a lot of the current field of studies that are going around right now. All of them cost money. Okay. And the people shelling out that money shell out that money so they can say scientists have looked at this thing and concluded that what we're selling you is fine except that it's not fine um, if you want just one example of the unholy matrimony between money prop and, and science and scientific studies uh, go look up the movie thank you for smoking which is one of the reasons one of many reasons why I have a very large distrust of the medical industrial complex here in the United States. Thank You for Smoking was a major motion picture that was basic, uh, how do I want it? Not a documentary. It was based on real events. They paid doctors to go and say smoking was healthy for you. Smoking was perfectly fine. And yes, even pregnant mothers can smoke. Of course, now we all know that smoking causes cancer and there's a whole host of carcinogens sitting inside that filter. But they actually took it to court. And because they had doctors and scientists that they had paid off to go and say these things in court, they thought they had a solid case. Always, 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 always do your own due diligence. Never take somebody's word for it. Because you don't know if they're lying, and you also don't know if they're being paid to lie. Word of caution. 
right, so continuing. Regardless of the gaps, these kinds of studies translate into snappy news coverage. As reflected in the New Yorker's headline, The Powerlessness of Positive Thinking. But such experiments rarely receive scrutiny from writers and researchers who are actually immersed in the practice and consideration of positive mind metaphysics. Unfortunately, such people number zero in academia. This situation also gives me concern. Why isn't the new thought culture more intellectually dynamic? Christian science has produced formidable scholars from within its ranks, such as Robert Peel and Stefan Gottschalk. So has Mormonism. New thought has lagged in this regard. I honestly would put it forth more as new thought encourages you to take control of yourself. Rather than be dependent upon someone else, you control your destiny, you control your life. No institution out there will actually teach you to be independent anymore. Um, teaching you how to be independent on your own, do your own thing, takes money away from them. One of the most perfect lines I've ever seen written was, they will never teach you the means to overthrow them. It's talking about whoever's in charge, right? They're never going to teach you enough to know what it is you're looking at, should that be happening, should you be saying something, should you be rising up, should you be speaking out? They're not going to teach you enough to recognize these things because they're the ones teaching you. They're also the ones doing the things that perhaps you wouldn't be exactly happy to learn they were doing. But that's my opinion on why this isn't in academia, which I agree with Mr. Horowitz. New thought should be studied, should be put forth as a legitimate growth forward. To shun ideas instead of discussing them and experimenting on them and discovering new and inventive ways of doing and being and thinking and going and moving. Why shun them? Why, why censor them? Why laugh at them? Why ridicule them? Instead of discussing them. Because honestly, ridicule doesn't do anything other than show that you're afraid to have this discussion. Or maybe they're afraid of where that discussion could actually lead. I'm not sure. But I agree with Mr. Horowitz. Um, what I have learned through my you know various hours of research into this topic myself is that We've only begun, oh my goodness, last hundred years of research and we have only touched on the vast abilities that the mind actually possesses. And I mean vast abilities. So, alright, enough of my little tangent, continuing. 
Because the intellectual culture denigrates terms like New Age and positive thinking, even positive psychology pioneer Martin Seligman has rushed to disavow any connection to the power of positive thinking, which he describes as passive and unscientifically wishful. As I've written in my book One Simple Idea, some of the finest voices in new thought and positive mind metaphysics in the early 20th, in the early 20th century, including French hypnotherapist Kuei and American minister John Herman Randall, prescribed methods that square with current protocols in neuroplasticity and cognitive psychology. There is no simple way of dismissing or proscribing positive thinking. In fact, a better line of distinction for Seligman would be that New Thought has historically been spiritual in nature. It employs a metaphysical outlook that posits our thoughts as a channel of higher creative power or extra-physicality versus Seligman's focus on devising sounder psychological patterns. For this reason, I too see differences between new thought and positive psychology, but for reasons other than Seligman's. All of this leaves us with a situation where positivity-based psychologists like Seligman are eager to distance themselves from their own intellectual forebears, and most journalists lack the forum, or instinct, to discuss whether spiritual self-help books may, in fact, dramatically improve lives, and to do so more fully, in some cases, than books that aspire to clinical validation. The Endurance of New Thought-Oriented Classics ranging from As a Man Thinketh, 1903, to Psy Psycho-Cybernetics, rests on the broad and even epic nature of their philosophy. Such works impart meaning and provide an ethical path to follow, with the aim of developing the whole person. Most clinicians and researchers, however, disregard, if not denigrate, individual testimony from New Agers, positive thinkers, and 12-step group members. <sighs> and this, finally, exposes the core challenge of evaluating books of spiritual self-help. Researchers are neither trained nor inclined to consider personal testimony. The problem, to me, this problem extends back to the days of William James who noted that many Victorian-era scientists, like many cognitive researchers today, regarded te personal testimony as fickle, obfuscating, and scientifically useless, rather than one part of a valid record. Svoboda quotes psychologist Joan jo Joanne V. Wood of the University of Waterloo, a current critic of spiritual self-help, dismissing the experiences of New Age readers. She says, concluding that it works based on personal experience does not constitute rigorous research. Fair enough. But if a certain type of testimony coalesces into a comparative record across decades, 
Is that not to be considered? Historically, researchers have found it difficulty, excuse me, difficult to study Alcoholics Anonymous, a fluid, non-sectarian fellowship where people come and go. This is all the more reason to regard the testimony of AA members as an important link in understanding the endurance of the 12-step approach. And, given some of the concerns I've raised above, I think it's questionable that the past decade's critical experiments in positive mind therapeutics would prove any more definitive or repeatable than the experiences of participants in metaphysical thought systems such as AA, science of mind, and unity. Okay, so 12-step is included in here because it was actually the brainchild of somebody else who used Buddhism, New Thought, and a couple of other paths, religions, ethical books, to come up with the 12-step program. Alright, before 12-step uh, came about, there really wasn't a program to help people get from, you know, where they were to where they are. Now you have all sorts of 12-step programs. you got 12-step programs just not just for alcoholics, but for um, any sort of addiction that you've got out there. So drug, uh, like weed, heroin, crack, um, money. All right, there's 12-step programs out there for people who are addicted to money, gambling, okay? But it started off as an offshoot of a new thought, of a new thought component. So that's why it's included here. It is natural for people to shop around for religions or spiritual movements that fit their needs. I have friends and family members who have benefited immeasurably from 12-step programs, mindfulness meditation, or new religious movements, movements such as Mormonism and Christian science. And I know others for whom such approaches are anathema. I have found great help in my own life from mystical philosophers such as Neville Goddard and Vernon Howard and the practice of transcendental meditation. None of this proves that one system or another works. Rather, it demonstrates, as does a vast record of personal testimony, that the experience of the individual, the very thing that Professor Wood dismisses, is a vital element in understanding spiritual self-help. Okay, so let's go over this just real quick. The problem with this is, far and away, is that science, and therefore psychology, the medical field, all that kind of stuff, relies on being able to repeat in a laboratory setting these things concretely. The issue becomes, we are not repeatable. Human beings are unique. The mechanics that makes one person motivated beyond belief might actually cause the other person to go into depression. Okay? They're dismissing the individual experience and the issue becomes the individual is the crux center of the entire thing. To dismiss the individual experience because the individ that can't be repeatable, replicatable, 
all of, all of these other things, this is why they have such a problem with it. They can't take it, put it in a laboratory setting, and repeat it. Because that's not how the universe works, and they hate that, and so they dismiss it completely out of hand. Alright. The issue becomes that they will not accept as valid the very thing that creates its validity. And that's individual experience. Alright? This set of affirmations works on that person. They won't work on that person. Why? Because everyone's perspective is different. And when you are dealing with a person and their individual experiences, it can't be repl replicated in a laboratory setting. Period. We have all of these understandings of how the individual reacts to certain situations. And we have all of these other experiments and tests that have been conducted proving all these different aspects, and yet they still won't acknowledge it. And that's so unbelievably frustrating. So, continuing. Um, we're gonna get to a little break-off period here, and then we're gonna stop for the day. My personal observation is that the classics of self-help, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, all the way back to 1939, and Think and Grow Rich, 1937, retain a unique hold across generations and benefit from considerable word-of-mouth recommendation, which suggests something far more than faddish appeal or a revolving door of gullible readers. It has been my sense that the effectiveness of such books rests heavily on the passion of the individual reader. As an Arab proverb goes, the way bread tastes depends on how hungry you are. Your depth of hunger for self-change is likely to match the benefit you experience from any legitimate self-help program. I applaud Svoboda for opening this discussion and arguing for those works of practical psychology that she has found personally meaningful. But we are a long way from finding proper ground in mainstream media and scholarship to seriously consider, without apology or embarrassment, the efficacy of the woo peddlers. That's back to uh, a little snarky remark earlier in this chapter. So we're going to stop there for today. Hmm. Now, I knew, like I said, I'm going to go go ahead and say this again. I'm, you're probably going to hear me say it again and again. I knew there was criticisms out there. But honestly, at this stage, at where we're at in experimentation, medical history, science, the world, all these different things. Really? I mean, that kind of surprises me that it still has not gotten any more mainstream... Validation? Validity? I mean, come on. All of these really well-known studies, and they still won't give it validity. Because, so, I mean, Mr. Horowitz wrote this in, what, 2017? Came out in 2019, so it's rather new. 
Um, you know, we've come light years from our understandings from where we were just a decade ago. So that just really saddens me that we're still at that point. Really? The powerlessness of positive thinking? What a joke! So you'd rather me sit there and be unhappy and uncomfortable all the time and, you know, think that there's external reasons and just completely feel hopeless that I can't change, change my life, my ability to do things? It's absolute bullshit if you're going to sit there and tell me that I can't be happy without an external factor making me happy. I can conjure happiness in my head. I know I've done it. I've done it countless times. I'll continue to do it. Okay. And then you've got the popularity of, um, oh, how do I put this, like Mind Valley? I remember when Mind Valley was a small little startup in this guy's apartment. And now it's one of the biggest libraries of New Age mysticism that you'll find on the planet with actual teachers in varied fields. Like Jim Quick will teach you how to have a super amazing memory. It's, well, how do I put this mysticism? Not mysticism, but, um, oh. Go look up Mind Valley. M-I-N-D-V-A-L-L-E-Y. It's an amazing site with lots of courses that you can take to help you in all sorts of different areas, from getting your best body to the best memory to um, the best meditation practices. They have uh, world-renowned speakers that come from all over, and they'll create a course, like a little mini course, just for Mind Valley. It's like two hundred bucks. For two weeks and you get all this amazing content. I've bought a couple courses off of them. They're fantastic. From Christine Marie Sheldon to Marissa Peer, who is one of England's and you know, consequently the world's most amazing hypnotherapist. She pioneered RTT or rapid transmissional um, therapy. And she know she figured out a trick to get you into the hypnotic state in no time flat. And it has something to do with your eyes and getting them to look up. And you're basically inducing rapid eye movement or REM. And it gets you into the hypnotic state in minutes. Like, you can do it in under a minute. The hypnotic state. Marissa Peer, RTT, go look it up. It'll blow your mind. You can actually find some of her stuff on YouTube if you fancy a go. So it really makes me sad to think that it's getting such a bad rap still. And it makes me a little angry. I'm like, all of these things should be taught to people as they're growing. Personally, I think the world would be a, a lot better off if people would understand their relationship in it and their relationship to other people and just how powerful their minds really are to shape their perspectives, how they approach life, the life that they see, the life that they encounter. God, that just makes me really sad. And yet, not unexpected, considering where the world is really gone in a lot of places. Instead of bothering to have a conversation, it's just far easier to snicker and ridicule and brush it off your shoulder. Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. I have this pedigree. I'm an expert. Again, experts aren't 
who built the first airplane. People just messing around, saying, yeah, let's see if we can actually make this thing work. And then they went and did it. It wasn't an expert that created the first light bulb. It wasn't an expert that discovered DC and AC current. And going even farther back, it wasn't an expert that figured out how to make fire. Yes, you're learned in your field, but that doesn't mean that new fields can't be explored. And as new fields are discovered, you're going to have to create entirely new researchers to go and discover new things in that field. To dismiss that out of hand because you think it's silly makes you the idiot. Yeah, I'm going to say that. It makes you the idiot. Without bothering to question or learn or discover for yourself and really ask those questions, you're just going to dismiss it. Wow, that's arrogant. So, some things to uh, ponder today. Interesting information. I'm, I'm glad I'm aware of it now, although that makes me really, really sad. So, go ahead and do a little wiggle and get in a little stretch, and we will do our two-minute brain break. Close your eyes and let's take a nice, slow, deep breath in. Just let your awareness settle into the space. And breathe. And just let go. Let it all go. All the worries, all the fears, all the criticisms, all the nagging, all the arguments. All the responsibilities, all the titles, all the striving, all the running, all the rushing. Just let it all go. And breathe. 
Okay. So just an aside, I'm not denouncing or discrediting experts in their field. I'm saying that shouldn't be the only marker by which things are judged. That's it. Okay. Plenty of ordinary people, or as Albert Einstein put it, passionately curious. Okay, an expert exists in a field that is already established. Or maybe they've gone to a school to get like a doctorate in something, again, in the field that's already established. Of knowledge that has already been obtained. For all the advances in the centuries now that we have been working on new thought movement and the power of the mind and my metaphysics, as Mr. Micharwitz puts it, um, again, we've only scratched the surface. There is a brand new um, topic of archaeology called archaeoacoustics. Basically, the study of all of these ancient sites and how mysteriously, fantastically, amazingly, they're all still going. Again, this is a brand new field. They're all um, tuned to specific frequencies. If you make a sound like a, a gong or a chime or a bell or something in these caverns and then you measure the output they're all tuned to a specific frequency one how the hell did they do that two why and three somebody had to ask the question first someone had to be an accident first and then it sprang forth this entire new field of study I guarantee you it wasn't an expert. I guarantee you there are no current experts, not with certainly decades or doctorates or any of those things under their belt. Archaeoacoustics, the study of ancient sites for their acoustical anomalies. Alright. The study of the mind is a problem for scientists, medical field, psychologists, and the like. Because the mind is not a physical object that they can submit to rigorous testing. The brain is not the mind. The mind is not the brain. The brain connects to the mind in a very sophisticated and complex way. While also running all the different parts of the body. Right? And because you can't physically plug in to the mind, you have to do it through energy. You have to do it through meditation. You have to do it through thinking. You cannot take a thought and put it inside of a scientific experiment and run those experiments over and over and over again. You can't take a thought, take it out of your head and do that. That's what makes researching this so unbelievably difficult. It's because there is no physical thing to interact with. The closest thing we do have is the brain. Man, that saddens me though. Oh, that, oh. Oh. Oh, that just makes me so sad. Okay. Oh. Sorry, I'm still upset that they burnt the Library of Alexandria. That's that's just me personally. So, we're getting a little long. Lots of things to think about today. I've given you a couple things you can go look up on your own. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your participation. Thank you so much for your patience. 
and have a fantastic rest of your evening. This is the podcast, Sassafras. Good night.